4: Good morning. It is fall in the air with flurries and chills. It's also Sunday take on news talk, 830 WCCO. I'm Blois Olson. Another week has passed in politics here in Minnesota. And well, there's not a lot of progress. uh, City leaders in Minneapolis and St. Paul are still digesting the results of municipal elections and even Towards the end of the week, Governor Tim Walls floated the idea that if there's not a special session before Thanksgiving, that it probably won't happen till January. Starting to have people really kind of come out of the woodwork to run for the legislature, both in the suburbs and in St. Cloud, in open seats and in competitive seats. And of course, that big infrastructure bill passed last week and Democrats are doing a little bit of a victory lap before they... Uh, It gets signed this week by President Biden. But we took the chance this week to talk uh, to two guests. The first is Michael Mandel; He's an economist with the Progressive Policy Institute. We talked to him because Amy Klobuchar, the senator, her antitrust bill is going to be up in Congress this week on tech companies. And the real question is, will more regulation or will the division or kind of clamping down on tech companies. Will it impact the economy? What will it do for jobs? Michael Mendel joins us. And then really this week was about an extended interview with Governor Tim Walls. He heads out to Finland for a trade mission. We discussed that. We discussed schools and education and as a teacher, what he thinks about where we're at and whether or not One Minnesota is possible. One Minnesota is aspirational i think we all could agree that we'd love to be unified but one minnesota means something different depending on where you live and what your situation is where your kids are how old they are if you have kids one minnesota means something different if you're gay or if you're straight one minnesota means something different if you work in a white collar job or a blue collar job but the idea is that we're neighbors you know After 2016, I had a conversation with a neighbor who said they voted for Trump, and I said, why are you telling me after the election, and and why are you saying so sheeplessly? And he said, well, you know, I just didn't know who I could talk to. Well, the fact of the matter is, if one Minnesota is possible, or if discussion and debate is healthy, then my neighbor, the person who has the garage code, who may watch my keys, should be able to talk to me about any of their politics. Especially me, because it helps me be better at analyzing them. So this week, stay tuned. Michael Mandel is next. And then we'll sit down with Governor Walls for nearly 30 minutes. I'm Blois Olson. This is Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO.
0: Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced.
1: Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy.
4: Welcome back to Sunday Take. I'm Blois Olson here on News Talk 830 WCCO. Joining me now is Michael Mendel. He's the Vice President and Chief Economist at the Progressive Policy Institute. And I wanted to have him on the show because there's this tone, and and I asked the governor about it later this morning, uh, about jobs and tech. And we see so many headlines about tech and regulation and Facebook and free speech and all those things. But at its core, tech and innovation have been huge in driving our economy. And uh, Michael Mendel has studied this. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Glad to be here. So one of the things that I keep thinking about when it comes to these debates over tech's influence or data and broadband is that we've said for a long time especially in healthcare that we're going to need this technology that it's the future of jobs but but there continues to kind of be these regulatory layers that come out there what where where are you and where is your thinking on kind of this balance between regulation and and innovation well the first
2: thing to remember is that tech e-commerce has turned out to be the biggest job creator in the economy. I mean for years it was healthcare, but I mean over the last four years, tech e-commerce companies have created 1.4 million jobs uh, nationally and continue to create jobs even during the pandemic so that so that if we're thinking about where their future is, where the future of jobs is, this has been a great job job engine. Um, And when we think about regulation of the tech sector, and obviously everybody agrees that that Uh, that more regulation is needed okay but we don't want it to be job destroying regulation we don't want to sort of take the take a well-functioning car pull out the engine and then be surprised that it doesn't run
4: right no i think that's true and i i think that that's one of the questions that i keep getting or you know people will be ticked off one day but then they wonder you know about jobs The governor is going on a trade mission this week and Minnesota has been talking about green tech for a long time. Are there buckets between tech and innovation or buckets of the economy that you see future job growth being important and where, you know, energy is a highly regulated industry? Are there regulations that get in the way of job growth if we look at green jobs?
2: Well, I think we have to think about smart regulation here. I mean, in a lot of these areas, we need to have regulation, but we also need to pay a lot of attention to not getting in the way of job creation. Now, we are the Progressive Policy Institute. We identify as being left, the left of center, but pragmatic think tank. And what that means is that we sort of balance out these two things. We balance out. We balance out the regulation, and but we also like the regulatory improvement being able to sort of keep regulations out of the way of job creation. And one of the problems that we have at this point is that the people who support these strong antitrust bills against the tech companies are not thinking about what the implications are for job growth. In states like Minnesota, we've done a state-by-state analysis of of tech e-commerce job creation. I mean, we've seen job creation, 7,000 jobs Okay, created in uh, created in Minnesota over the last four years in tech e-commerce while while the rest of the economy has kind of gone down. And it's been a very steady flow.
4: Next week or this coming week, Senator Amy Klobuchar is going to start to really look at the antitrust bill. She is touting it's got some bipartisan support. Um, She's really good at getting attention on these big bills that she's authoring she'll what are the things that listeners should know about the way they're you know klobuchar and others are approaching this antitrust regulation because frankly i don't i don't know that we've had as big of an antitrust battle like this in a generation or so
2: well i think this the the, these particular bills have are very broad based have very large penalties associated with them and, and don't offer any safe harbors for the companies, which means you're going to see them, you see these large companies that have been doing a lot of hiring pull back. They're going to be more cautious. And, they're, and I think we're going to end up with less innovation, less job creation. And you know, the fact is, these companies continue to create jobs even during the pandemic, which was pretty astounding. They really put a floor underneath the economy.
4: Do we know where, I mean, is there any kind of, Data or accountability in what kind of job you know growth or how job growth would slow or things like that because you, you think about it and I think this is one of the things that's obtuse to maybe it's me and older people but is is a lot of these tech jobs people you know programmers or designers or all these kinds people don't necessarily know what these folks do but if they but if those jobs aren't out there those are you know. Kids who are just coming out of college, people who are out of college not so long, that, that that's where, you know, as I get older, I think we need to keep growing those jobs so that, you know, some of us can retire before I'm 90. Yeah.
2: Well, so uh, wouldn't you like to retire before you're 90? I think so, too. But well, actually what happened is that a lot of the tech e-commerce jobs are, are what I call middle skill jobs, not the programmers, but people who have maybe an associate's degree or some college that have been really left behind by the by the boom of the last twenty years, and this is this is our future middle class. These are people that um, you know don't aren't necess- don't necessarily have advanced degrees. They may not have a four year college education, but the you know you, we're talking about um, not programmers, but say uh, people who sort of run networks or databases. Okay, okay. Uh, we're talking about a lot of the middle the middle level, you know, people that. Are, are are our middle class, okay. and you know the, the tech jobs. I mean, it's funny you think about healthcare. You know, health care healthcare pays uh, pays less than tech e commerce for these middle skilled jobs, and this is why we've actually kind of fallen behind. And the tech, healthcare, of course, is extremely regulated, right? And we don't want to go the same way with the with the tech e commerce
4: sector. No, I think that makes sense. Michael Mandel's is my guest. He's from the Progressive Policy Institute. He's our chief economist. We're talking about impact of regulation on on tech and uh, Senator Klobuchar's upcoming hearings. Last question, Michael, you bring up the middle class. Is tech the great hope for expanding that middle class? Because that does seem to be historically one of the things that we're lacking right now and probably could help with many issues from housing to wage growth, et cetera, uh, amongst either people with an associate's degree or people who are just trained on the job. I see this, I,
2: my, my research shows that tech e-commerce is, is gonna be the substitute for manufacturing in terms of creating this new, you know, this missing middle. I mean, bringing the people up and the, who have middle skills and middle education and, and just giving them a, a,
4: a better future. Sounds great. Michael, thanks for joining us on Sunday Tech. Oh, thanks for having me here. Listen, to Sunday Tech, when we come back, Governor Tim Walls, the extended interview, he's announced his reelection plans is One Minnesota Possible? Hear what he says here on News Talk 830 WCCO.
5: After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela.
4: Welcome back to Sunday Take here on News Talk 830 WCCO. I'm Blois Olson. Joining me for this last segment this Sunday, uh, I am happy uh, that we're finally going to have an extended conversation. Governor Tim Walls is joining me. Governor, thanks for joining me. Yeah, Great to be with you, Blois. Thanks for having me. I know you're just getting ready uh, to go across the pond on a plane, on a trade mission, which is probably long overdue. You're headed to Finland. What's the agenda uh, when you get to Finland and how does how does our relationship with Finland matter to Minnesota?
3: Yeah, it's a great question. And during my time uh, as governor, we've got to do this with uh, Japan and South Korea. And these trade missions uh, are our, our shark tank, if you will. We take our best and brightest. We know that our state is as competitive as any in the country. And in fact, more so than most, um, both in large corporations and and startups. And so we're going to we're going to hit two of our big trading partners. We're going to hit the United Kingdom. Um, of course, they're looking for trade partners post-Brexit. Um, but Finland, Finland's really interesting, and they've made a, a real outreach. They're not on the national level with you know looking to, to partner that strongly. They're about 6 million people. Finland ranks first of all the nations in sustainability. And, and as Finland punches way above its weight, like I think Minnesota does, you know, Nokia and some of those that started the the tech revolution around phones but what we hope to do is is to build on this relationship they're about our 50th largest trading partner now but we've signed a uh, a letter of understanding and a commitment i'll be meeting with the finnish president that a commitment to our to uh our state and their country because we're very similar you know that we have finnish heritage here obviously for that but in terms of natural resources and vision for a, a future we're similar so the hope is to develop uh you know, uh, business opportunities. We'll be taking folks along who will be pitching to that. We'll try and make sure that there's uh, investments going both ways. And I think it gives us a good opportunity to highlight um, what's good about Minnesota. It's been a challenging couple years for folks, and you know, you t- uh, reputation takes a bit of a beating. The facts are still this: that if you start a business in Minnesota, you got a better chance here than any other state that you'll be around in five years. We're still top 10 in innovation. So that's the purpose of it, to try and expose us, to make our case, to develop relationships and um, and hopefully create some jobs.
4: Staying on the business topic just for a second, and obviously I want to talk about your decision to run for re-election, but I think this kind of plays in. You know, obviously businesses have had their challenges and there just seems to be kind of this tone, especially amongst Democrats at the national level and even at the local level that... You know, there's just a different economic system that they would like or business, even most business, even small business uh, that makes a profit is somehow vilified. Any thoughts on how Democrats need to work differently or or better with business after all this time? And kind of obviously we're polarized, but this just seems to be probably the most significant and dramatic in my my lifetime.
3: Well, I think some of us do that. I I reject that that frame in this because I think um, we celebrate when people are successful. I think with the the case we should be making, and, and again, I I actually see this voice. I see a lot of Republican legislators rooting for failure, telling folks that they you know it's not safe, they can't do this. We know we've got to tackle public safety, but that's an international issue as much as anything. I think the case we make on this, and I've always made. That, that we want people to be successful, but we want to make sure that all boats are lifted with that. And, and that's kind of this idea around a fairness of wages. Now we're seeing, a uh, you know, obviously post-COVID, some of the, the uh, inflationary pressures, but we're also seeing wages go up. And, and I've always thought about that. And you've heard me, I think, whether it's business partnership or the Chamber of Commerce, going and lifting this up I believe that that our moral capitalist system can work I believe it's lifted people out of poverty I believe it's improved lives um, it's given opportunities I think what we need to be a little more specific about is where are the barriers for some people participating in this really good economy where are those things at and I don't think they do such a good job I think demonizing um, corporate America as a blanket statement is is simply the wrong way to go I would argue in Minnesota corporate philanthropy, has created opportunities and lifted people up and worked on poverty. When I make a call to help on homelessness, we had a goal where we wanted to match a million dollars. It took like eight days. We, we were thinking it would take two months. It doesn't take that here. I know that there's folks out there that are investing in um, community safety programs from the yep. private sectors. I think people just need to see that. And, you know, I to, candidly, I get a little pushback that that makes me moderate. Um, well, so be it then. <laughs> um, but the, it works together. People can only can enjoy this life if there is a stable economic base to do so, and our partners in business are partners.
4: What about that moderate label because that is one of the things you've announced you're running for reelection uh you get to frame your case of why you want another four years in this job, and you know maybe people on the progressive side might say he's too moderate or you know, moderates might say he's too progressive. Are you a moderate? Are you a progressive? What we think if they're all on the spectrum? I would argue
3: effective. And I think that's <laughs> where I've always used the word moderate in this, that I want to get things done. I will take half a loaf. If that loaf goes to folks, it makes a difference. And I think whether it be, strong state bipartisan budgets that have gone through. We're going to see the largest surpluses in state history. We're going to see our credit rating the highest it's ever been. And our pensions are first in the nation and fully funded. I've done that without issuing a veto, but I would also make the case is I've invested more in education than anybody has in decades. We've done more with local government aid for greater Minnesota, and we passed bonding bills. I think, again, I've heard people say the only thing in the middle of the road is a dead raccoon. No, that's not true. That's not the only thing that's there. It's not about that. I am not passionate about uh, housing. I'm passionate about um, criminal justice reform. I'm passionate about uh, environmental issues. But I also think that there's a place that people need to realize you're not elected to these offices just to espouse a position. You're elected to get things done. And I think in the midst of, of navigating some pretty troubled waters, We've also laid out a pretty clear path of where the future lies. And I think this trade mission and with, to be very clear, Finland came to us and Forbes magazine recently said the place that could capitalize best on a post carbon future would be the state of Minnesota. And I think that's what we're leaning into.
4: One of the themes uh, three years ago, and one of the themes as we go forward is this idea of one Minnesota, you know, the data shows that even, from last year and even three years ago that people just, people are turned off by politics. They're Googling football games and other things much more. Me too. Um, With them. Right. No. Hey, me too. Just, just for the record. Uh, What, how do we get to one Minnesota at a time when we are so polarized? Uh, It's very aspirational. I think, you know, I even question, is he going to keep that theme going next year because It's a pretty tough theme to sell to to people who are really turned off by politics. And frankly, the extremes are, as you know, more polarized than ever on the left and the right.
3: Yeah, I'm doubling down because this is exactly the reason I brought this. I don't I don't I'm not Nostradamus here, but I tell you, boys, I felt this coming. I felt it in southern Minnesota. Think about this. In my district, we would go back and forth, and and you know, 20 years ago, split ticket voting—one party for the president, another party for yep. the member of Congress—that was the norm. That wasn't out of the way. That no longer happens. I was one of the last four districts, you know, in first district where that did happen. Um, they overwhelmingly voted for President Trump, but they voted for me as a member of Congress. So my whole point was when I think people hear "one Minnesota," this is means there's room for everybody. It doesn't mean we all agree. I I want people to have uh, a plethora of opinions in different places, but that we can work across those differences to get things done. I, I think there's folks that uh, it frustrates them that, that I am willing to try and find middle ground with Republicans. Now, I will, I'll be honest with you. It's getting harder and harder to do that. that. That is a fact. I think, as you said, how do we get beyond it? There would be those that would tell me, well, just don't worry about them. Just go all in and you get elected and you do whatever you wanna do on your ideas. Uh, That's a recipe for disaster. People have to get wins out of this. So I think coming back and again, I I think it's no small feat to pass two incredibly balanced budgets with tax cuts, middle class tax cuts, um, and having these reserves. Now, I get blamed for everything else. So I'll take credit for that. But we all know it's not me alone. It worked together um, in a divided legislature. So I am going to come back to that, that, that I think we're stronger together. And that doesn't mean you agree with me. But it means we agree to be able to say, you know what? Greater Minnesota's economy matters. Twin Cities economy matters. Way that people live in northern Minnesota matters. The way that people live in southern Minnesota matters. And there's room for all of us.
4: Last question before we take our break here, Governor. Um, one of the things on those middle tax class tax cuts and the budgets was that, you know, you had a significant tax increase um, on the table. And you left it on the table for quite a while. Is that about leverage or is that about the idea that we still do need a tax increase in Minnesota? Uh,
3: yes, and and quantified yes around those at the very top. And I think we've seen this where we've seen a massive amount of wealth go to the top. And again, I'm not criticizing people for being successful. What I am saying is, is that people who are working middle class jobs for wages shouldn't be paying more of their their income in tax than folks at the very top. I do believe in a progressive taxation system, but I also am somebody, I think, unlike maybe some of the critics on this, never ever should we do a tax. Well, you do when you're shortage and you need it and the services need to be there. I've also shown that I can adjust to this. I will note, yes, there's leverage in that. I have historic investments in education, in housing, environment, and things like that. But I do believe, and just to be keep in mind, I have never proposed a tax on anybody making less than $200,000 a year. So that's a Very, and and those folks, and this is going to, you're going to, you know, when they run ads over this year, they have to be honest ads. I have cut taxes for the middle class and raise no tax, Um, all at the same time balancing a budget.
4: Got it. We'll come back with the rest of this on Sunday Take on News Talk 830 WCCO. Welcome back to Sunday Take. My guest this hour, Governor Tim Walls, uh, talking about his plan for reelection. Governor, one of the big topics that you know you came out and took a position on, uh, we've debated it for nearly a year and a half, is public safety, public safety reform. You were opposed to question two in Minneapolis. Do you have things that you want to champion going forward that people should know about now as the discussion in Minneapolis and obviously at the legislature will continue through next year?
3: Yeah, and I think, Blois, we saw this. Everything gets oversimplified in black and white. That's just part of how politics goes. I knew that no matter how the the charter amendment vote came out, the, the work is just starting. And holding two, they were not diametrically opposed. The idea that you should have accountability in all services that are provided, and police included, Um, where folks can feel safe and feel like they're being heard, represented and there's accountability, but also with the recognition, you can't be carjacked going to your car and you have to make sure that we get back to a place where Minnesota ranked, um, 47th in meaning best in terms of the low crime rates. We still rank very high, but it's too high as it sounds or as it stands right now. So I will come back and make the case that we have made reforms of banning chokeholds, making sure there's more accountability in what the public can see around policing. But we also have to encourage folks to go into the profession of keeping our our communities safe. I've made the case that um, I've certainly funded um, across the state through my increases in local government aid, which is a big piece of how local communities fund their police departments. Um, I made the case, and, and this was defeated from both the left and the right, of a fusion center. Um, this is the idea that we use our best knowledge to combine local, uh, you know, cities, county, and state, as well as federal resources to prevent crime before it happens in the first place. And so I think coming back to folks and saying, we we are not that divided on this issue. We want safety in our community and we want accountability for police and people to feel like they're there without alienating those who are doing the work. So I think it gives us an opportunity to come back at it. Because just to be clear, those people who scream, you know, there's too much crime, where's their plan? Where's their plan? And, And what I've said is, whether it be Fusion Center, whether it be I asked for an addition and did not get it to the state patrol because I need to make sure that they're on our highways because death rates have gone up there. Um, there is striking the balance. The question here is, is we need right sized police forces and we need services that are aimed at and responsive to each individual
4: situation. Just a follow up there. Cause I think it, it matters, especially to, you know, my audience and the listeners here. Um, You know, recently, after the vote in Minneapolis, one of your closest supporters, the best friend of your lieutenant governor, said you were dishonest in Minneapolis. Can you respond to being called dishonest about question two?
3: Well, I, I did not see that one. I, I, would, I would simply say I was not. I was asked an opinion um, the first week in August when I had read through this, and I said I believe people are elected um, to help solve these problems. I felt that there was too much of a vagueness around an issue that was too important. Um, I felt like there was a commitment. And again, I don't know if people... If the issue was around defunding, but but there were folks that used that term. And, and I said I, I don't think that's in any way to approach this. So um I'm sorry that people see it that way. I think I was very candid about this. I think one of the things is I was one of the people that came out probably first and, and stated an opinion on this, but more importantly, stated an alternative plan of how we would get there through some of the things that that were in state budget. And again. Local policing is a local issue. The state is there to provide support where they can. But I do believe that when you're in an elected position, you make the case. And I stated uh, my opinion on where I saw things. I stated how I viewed it. And I stated it as someone who has to deal with this. Had this passed, what was the plan? And that's what people were asking. And and I think there were plenty of opportunities to explain that. And I I think had that been done, then maybe it would have passed. But I, I think the majority of people didn't feel like that was done.
4: One of the things that's been kind of floated on public safety reform is is reform of the post board. Do you have a plan? Is there a plan you've seen that you could get behind? Uh, is that something that you think the legislature should try to tackle in the next session?
3: Yeah, we've been doing it. What I can do, I think you know that you've seen changes over there that we, as I said, we've done to um, some of the, uh, the policies that are in place. We actually, uh, again, put forward a A First Amendment policy that protects people's rights to to First Amendment speech and and gatherings, but also make sure that those things don't get out of control. I think you've seen us lean into reforms um, around uh, how you take complaints to the post board. Some of that is going to take legislative work, but uh, we signed some of the most sweeping reforms that that we've ever had in Minnesota, I'll be the first to tell you, there's a large number of people, obviously affected communities that don't feel it's gone far enough, but we we've done it inside the system. We've made those, those changes uh, moving forward. Now we need to see if they're working. And, and I'll be the first to tell you community safety is around housing. It's around educational equity. It's around job opportunities. It's around generational wealth. There's a whole bunch of things here. And and most of the research, including, including all of the, the public safety experts, it's not just sheer force of will of numbers, although that you do need to have, um, you know, functioning police forces, functioning responses yep. need to be there. So I think there's an opportunity. I think the post board is a great place for that to happen. And I, and I think anything in society, as we see changes happen, we should be willing to, to move and evolve
4: with them. One of the topics on equity that comes up a lot is criminal justice reform, uh, giving people a second chance. It's been a, you know, pre-COVID, it was a center point of your administration. First Lady Gwen Walls has been a huge advocate for this and a huge voice for this. Thinking of that, is there also some things we need to do to make sure violent criminals are serving more time or that there's a better probationary system based on the kind of this wave of crime we've seen amongst repeat offenders who maybe, you know, got out, you know, on good behavior, but then returned to crime or violence afterwards?
3: Yeah, well, I'd have to see more of the data. And I spend a lot of time with this on the recidivism rates. We're seeing good, pretty good results on that right now. And I think we have to understand that our criminal justice system to, you know, several points. One is the protection of the public, first and foremost, that's my job. The, the second is, is making sure people are accountable for their actions, and third is, is making sure there is a path to redemption for those who can be. Do we get that wrong at times? Yes, but there's also those opportunities that we need to recognize um, locking someone up for, for decades and decades um, maybe isn't the solution that gets us where we're trying to go, but I do think that, you know, we can 't oversimplify it and say, "Well, all this is happening because we 're too soft on crime. We need to go, but we 've seen how that worked when we were going to have this tough on crime thing we over incarcerated we created more problems in terms of uh of segregation of wealth and i so I think it 's striking that proper balance and and i again if it's if we 're sticking to slogans or if we think this is an election year issue and that 's when you 're going to deal with it, it will not work. I would ask folks to go back and look at some of the things, and again, in two thousand and nineteen I think my proposal around the fusion center would have had a huge impact on being able to communicate against who some of these people are. If there are career folks that are doing it, we need to know that. I think one of the problems is right now, whether it be in terms of numbers of police, but the communications amongst the different agencies is, is more difficult than it should be.
4: No, I think, I, I think you raise a good point there. I think it is an election year and these will be ads and there will be headlines. But I think when you look at, for instance, You know, the tragic shooting in St. Paul is, you know, it's about people who, you know, one of the shooters, arguably, you know, a judge decided they didn't need to go away. And I think we all know narratives and and those kind of emotions in in politics, but at some point there is data about some of these repeat offenders not, you know, not being rehabilitated. And I think it's on the violence in the public safety because once you start, once people start to feel safe or safer than they have maybe in recent months, you know, I think that the other stuff about minor drug offenses and those kinds of things are understandable. I think it's that that feeling of fear that people have right now, Governor, that people no, I, I, I do. Stuff.
3: No, I do. And I think some of it's real. I, I do, though, think and you've heard this even when crime was at a historic low in this state and nation you had people saying it because its it, it's the old it's one of the oldest political things in the book but I agree yep. if people don't feel safe they don't I, I think we need to be honest about that issue I think we need to be honest about access to firearms and how do we how do we put things in place and then how do we respond when they happen uh, granted um, you know a tragic situation like a truck stop. Um, every time we hear of these or whether it's a school shooting, we have to understand what is causing it. And, and it is, I can guarantee you, it's not a single issue, but it still, it still has a massive psychological impact on how people feel. And, and I think I would hope there would not be those that would, would trade on that fear for short-term political gain, but rather would say, how do we truly address it? And how are you going to propose fixing that?
4: Two more topics before we let you go here, Governor. Education. You're a teacher. Uh, Teachers and educators have been through a lot, as have parents, through the pandemic. Uh, And obviously, Minnesota has a great history of public education, top in the nation, all those things. But there seems to be a dynamic, and I'm not talking about critical race theory or curriculum. It's more of the idea that I think people feel at many levels of government, but they're starting to feel it at their school board that maybe their elected officials are, have kind of turned over those decisions to non-elected officials and there's this mismatch or the teachers are kind of bringing some of their own views that aren't about reading, writing, arithmetic into the classroom. How do we get back to Uh, kind of a healthy dialogue about education and public education, both in in the urban area where they're struggling with enrollment, and two, in greater Minnesota where where they're struggling for teachers, and then finally in the suburbs that obviously we know uh, pay a lot of property taxes and have uh, historically not had these issues?
3: Well, first of all, as a professional, we know how to separate this out. I I would make the case me being one example of this, I I would be pretty confident if you went to Mankato and talked to all the kids I taught and their parents, they would have no idea what my political positions were. What my job was is to try, even in classes that involve comparative religions, um, comparative political system. Um, One of the things is, is these are our professionals who have been there. I encourage parents to be involved with their schools. The question I think I would ask is how many of these folks have been there on parent teachers night? How many of them have been volunteering before this? How many of them have come when I offered opportunities, come set through the class? You're welcome to come in, sit in the back of the room, watch your kids, watch what we're doing. So the idea now is you may disagree with something that is part of the curriculum that has been decided by a bunch of professionals with parent input and all that. You happen to disagree with it. Um, That's different than saying we've had no say in this. We've had no say in writing the curriculum because that's not the way this is done. And so it's always been done with public input. It's always been done again in the most challenging times to encourage our students to engage in these conversations. It is not doing our students any good if we don't wanna engage in conversations about politics, about climate, about race, about um, economics, um, all of those things. So what I would encourage folks to do is be part of that process that gets there. Be part of the process how these things are written. And again, I'm going to make my big pitch on this. Teach, teach, <laughs> go into the profession, go into the profession. But I, I will say this and stand for my peers. There's a professional ethic here to believe that I would go in the classroom and try and influence students rather than teaching critical thinking skills. Um, you know, I would challenge people to provide, you know, you, you, you need to be very clear about this. It, it, it's accusing a physician of, Deciding not to follow the process and go through, so I wish people would we could ratchet some of this down um, to a point where it is about exposing our children to a myriad of ways of thinking, providing how you separate fact from fiction, understanding opinion versus fact. Um, all of those things are really important, and and I'm very proud of Minnesota schools. But I will tell you this: I will settle for nothing except the best, um, because our economic future. And our societal future depend on each other.
4: Last question, Governor. It came up in the last week that there's been some challenges from media organizations trying to get access to emails and information from your administration, including the fact that there's a second email address you use. Do you think the public should have access to the email correspondence from your gov- from your yep. office? And and are they preserving it if they've already? you know, missed a deadline or a timeline on producing those? Yeah, my my
3: administration has been the most transparent there. And I want to set this straight. As a journalist, there is no second email address. I manage my own. We have a place where folks can write in to me because I get constituents mail and need to handle it. I also have an email where I get my schedule. I get notice that the heat is being turned off to manage this in the building, all of those things. Those are all open to public search, and we provide all of them to them. There has been no indication that that has not happened. People may not like it that I do not use email as they like. They may not like it that I do not say things that are inflammatory because I don't do that. And I would just note, I passed the Stock Act in Congress. I passed the Office of Congressional Ethics Act in Congress. And I would like to see in Minnesota, the legislature have to produce their data just like the governor's office does. So I want to be clear. No email, nothing out there, all open for people to see. I take pride in that. In answer to your question, absolutely the public should have access to be able to see those things.
4: Governor Walls, thanks for this conversation. And though so if you've just caught the last end of this, I'm Bloy Solson. I've been talking to Governor Tim Walls for the last 20 minutes. This is Sunday Take on News Talk 830WCCO. If it's Sunday at 9 on CCO, we're talking politics.
0: T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today